You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell, all of the News and Observer. Uh, We'll talk this week about a big Supreme Court decision on redistricting and about the latest on health care at the federal level. Uh, But uh, first, it's House Budget Week next week, uh, and we started that actually a little bit this week with a round of committee action uh, on the uh, first glimpses of the House budget. Uh, so let's uh, let's all talk about kind of what we thought were the highlights of it. Colin, uh, you covered it yesterday. Uh, what uh, what did you find? Yeah, well, I guess we should preface by saying we haven't seen the whole budget yet. We won't see the whole budget until uh, our understanding is Tuesday uh, when it rolls out in the Finance Committee and there's supposed to be a press conference at the time. So what we do have is essentially the subcommittee reports. These are the uh, specific spending in specific areas, things like transportation, health and human services, uh, education, um, pretty much all the uh, line item stuff. What we don't have is are teachers going to get raises? If so, how much? How about state employees? And what about the tax plan? That'll all show up next week. So of what we know so far, which is a decent chunk of the budget, but not everything, um, sort of the interesting things we're just comparing to the Senate budget. Um, both the Senate and the House this year have set the same uh, bottom line spending number of $22.9 billion. Um, that's about a 2.5% increase over uh, the previous year's spending. Um, and that's going to set up a situation where you possibly don't have as much uh, negotiating back and forth between the House and the Senate. Uh, two years ago, when they took until September to do the budget, um, their spending numbers were pretty far apart, and that was a lot of the um, bickering that went on between the two chambers. This year, they've already agreed on that that number, so it's a matter of how much they spend. Um, and within that, uh, you can already sort of tell that the House has some slightly different priorities. Um, it's clear that their tax package is probably going to be a little bit smaller of a tax cut, so they're able to fund some things uh, that weren't getting funded in the Senate budget. The Senate uh, has a number of things that it wanted to cut, uh, not so much to save money, but just because they thought the programs needed to be cut, things like the governor's school or um, food stamps, uh, that food stamp provision that would have uh, changed the eligibility requirement. That's not in the House budget, so I thought that was pretty notable. Um, there are also some changes to the sort of 3 a.m. Uh, amendment that the Senate got a lot of uh, publicity for uh, that, that went in there. So uh, a lot of pretty notable differences uh, with the House and the Senate. Of course, uh, anything that's in one budget and not the other will be a negotiating chip for the next weeks or months. What's the rationale for doing it this way, where we just get to see part of it? Um, Part of it was that they needed to go ahead and have the subcommittee meetings, um, just in terms of the way the timeline worked. Um, I think there's some dispute as to whether the rest of the budget is available and done, and they're just not releasing it, which was what uh, Darren Jackson, the House Democratic leader, said was that they're keeping the rest of it in secret until Tuesday. Um, but I suspect there may also be some folks who are saying we're still tweaking uh, the the rest of the you know finance package and stuff, and so we'll have that ready when the Finance Committee meets. But they, they want to do the appropriations on Thursday because they've got a long weekend. Uh, no one's here Monday, obviously. Tuesday, they're having the finance and pensions committees that will take most of the day. Wednesday will be the full appropriations committee, and then that leaves Thursday and Friday to vote. So in order to get this done by, I think the goal was Nelson Dollar's birthday, the uh, budget writer who's got a birthday in early June, uh, this was sort of the timeline they came up with. Right. 
Well, Lynn, what did uh, you went to the Education Committee yesterday? Uh, what was uh, notable? Well, here are some highlights. Um, the governor's school, which the Senate cut out of its budget, the House did not. The House preserves the governor's school and uh, does not give uh, money to revive a legislative leadership school. So everything under the House budget would remain the same as it is now. Um, there were some infamous 3 a.m. Uh, Senate budget cuts to education that um, the House didn't go along with. So some of the um, uh, science, technology, education, math cuts that the Senate made um, in the early hours to uh, Democratic districts are uh, back in the House budget. Um, the House uh, took a much different look at uh, education policy than the Senate did. Um, the House wants, uh, you know, um, class sizes and the requirement to lower uh, class sizes in um, elementary grades was a big issue this year. The House wants um, districts to say, okay, well, what kind of space crunch is this going to create for you? Um, the Senate wasn't interested in getting any kind of report like that. Um, the House, uh, one of the big issues is uh, giving um, the new Republican state superintendent of public instruction, Mark Johnson, um, more staff. The House would give him 10 more people plus an associate superintendent for early education. Um, the Senate would give him five people, um, but the Senate does that by cutting jobs with people in them. Um, I think there are seven uh, filled jobs that the Senate would eliminate at DPI and the state board while the House gets rid of vacant positions. Um, so there's going to be uh, a lot of negotiating when it comes down to uh, the House and Senate differences. Um, but uh, we'll see what all falls out when uh, it, later this summer. It's uh, You mentioned the space crunch, and of course a lot of the debate has been over class size and uh, art, music, gym, teachers. Is there anything in either budget that deals with that, or is that still all to be continued? That's um, still to be continued. Um, there was some talk earlier about um, funding um, uh, teachers for specials, as they call them, but that didn't make it into either budget. Um, there is some language in the budget about um, more transparency for uh uh, for, uh, on the part of districts so that um, everybody knows exactly who they're spending their money on. So maybe that is a step toward um, looking at um, what kinds of teachers districts are, are paying for and what they might need should there um, be a class size reduction uh, as anticipated. And before Craig jumps in, I should say that uh, our colleague Jane Stansel also wrote about the budget yesterday and the higher ed provisions. And apparently, they've uh, taken a uh, uh, the House wants to get rid of the portion of the NC Promise tuition program that uh, for discount tuition for out-of-state students, it would keep the $500 a semester tuition for in-state students, but it would get rid of the $2,500 a year a semester uh, tuition reduction for out-of-state students at those three schools where they lowered tuition last year. Um, Craig, what you uh, looked at the environmental and the justice uh, uh, agencies' budgets. What's uh, what's notable there? 
Well, especially think, talking about the uh, law enforcement and courts uh, aspect of things, I didn't see any overarching themes other than they wish they had more money to play with. It's just they weren't really in a cut, cut, cut mode. It was in a stretch the dollar to you know to cover as many good programs as possible. But uh, some interesting things, kind of the, the uh, topical one now about uh, police body cameras. Uh, they would set up a fund of, I think it's $2 million, to provide a matching grant program with local law enforcement to help them buy not only body cams but uh, dashboard cams uh, also. Um, so that, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, one thing that, they might, that you might notice or at some point realize you hadn't noticed till then is that prison work crews may not be out picking up litter on the roadsides. Apparently the Department of Transportation wants to uh, do private contracting for that. It's rather than contracting as they do now with the, with the uh, prisons. Um, they think they can save money uh, by privatizing. Um, the, the Senate has a slightly different take on that. They would offer kind of first bidding, first first shot by the, by the Department of Corrections. They would do private, you know, they would call for bids and then they would say, okay, this is the best bid. Can Do you want to try to top that? That would sort of keep uh, corrections uh, in the game, so I, I, the House just cuts it out altogether. Uh, so we'll see what. what It'd be interesting to see what the uh, numbers come down to on that, because I kind of assumed that the inmate labor was pretty cheap because they're yeah, um, you don't really have to right. pay them minimum wage. Right, but you do have to hire the guys with the guns to oh, that's true. <laughs> keep them yeah. keep them in line. So uh, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those sounds good in theory if you're out to privatize and save money, but. Uh, we'll see how the, the prevailing wisdom is on that. Um, another thing worth noting is, uh, is maybe a little too insidery, but it, we, we, they can't seem to leave the Department of Public Safety alone. And they keep shuffling de- departments and divisions every year. And this year would take the ALE out from underneath the uh, SBI and it would take the State Capitol Police out from under the Highway Patrol and make them standalone divisions in the Department of Public Safety. Uh, the main thing that that would accomplish is these new divisions would have directors who could hire and fire their own employees. Uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of an interesting uh, interesting turn. You wrote about in the how in the Senate budget they want to give some raises uh, to judges, but only to just a few judges. Um, so what's going on there, and is that also in the uh, House budget, or is it still soon, too soon to tell because we don't know all about uh, raises? Yeah, I saw nothing like that in the uh, House budget. In the Senate budget, what it would do is allow judges to to count toward their longevity pay at the time they worked as administrative law judges, which they can't do right now. This uh, state employees get a certain allotment. I think the maximum is 48 percent of their salary uh, is like a little bonus pay they get for longevity. After a certain number of years, it steps up from 5, 10. The judges, however, get something like 24 percent, so they can really get quite a bit of money. And the main uh, beneficiary of this change would be a uh, Beecher Gray, a judge who spent close to 30 years as an administrative law judge, is now a superior court judge, I believe. He's also Actually, I shouldn't say. Never mind. I don't know if he's – he may or may not have gone to – I think I did see a report to that effect. So someone went confer- to, another news outlet confirmed that. Yeah, that he went to uh, the same law school and perhaps was classmates with Phil Berger. I just – as I started to say that, I realized I, we hadn't reported that ourselves. So. I think that would be Phil Berger Sr. Phil Berger Sr., yes. Phil Berger Jr., the son of Phil Berger, would also get some. He spent a couple years as a uh, – 
administrative law judge is now an appellate court judge, he would also get a little boost out of this too. Not a whole lot, but but he would get a boost. So uh, Berger's office, Berger Sr., says they had nothing to do with it whatsoever, uh, and which you know, may be perfectly true, um, but it doesn't look all that good. And I think Mike Morgan, the Supreme Court Justice, Mike would Morgan. also get a, a yeah. bump and... Uh, uh, Craig Croom, uh, who was a judge here. And, and I think there's, so uh, judges other than, this is the only kind of judge that doesn't get this? Is that sort of the rationale? Uh, yeah. They some they, district attorneys may get it? or Yeah, or some dis- other kind district of law? attorneys do get it, and the Utilities Commission, I think, they get it. Okay. Uh, it, it makes sense. You, you put in time as a judge. I mean, administrative law judges are, in fact, judges, and they go on to become a different, more powerful kind of judge. Um, so you, you know the idea is give them, give them the longevity credit. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we also got a uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, that was pretty significant this week on redistricting. It doesn't change anything. It uh, requires it upholds a lower court that uh, uh, struck down the congressional lines as uh, having two illegal gerrymanders, two districts, uh, the twelfth and the first, that are illegal gerrymanders. And uh, these are both long-running uh, fights over these districts. They've long been kind of uh, criticized as, uh, as strange shapes that uh, are, uh, are clear gerrymanders. Um, but uh, the lower court uh, struck them down, and now the, uh, the Supreme Court has upheld them with kind of a, uh, an interesting configuration of justices with Clarence Thomas uh, who is always against uh, the, uh, or almost always against any kind of um, drawing these based on race, siding with the liberal uh, justices on this. Uh, and uh, Colin, what's what's possibly next on this? Uh, yeah, so I mean this ruling, I think some of the, the national media coverage I saw kind of overblew it and said that the uh, state of North Carolina has to redraw their maps. Well, they already did that a year or so ago. Um, we do have new congressional maps, which I think are subject to their own set of uh, uh, different legal challenges uh, and have the same partisan makeup as the maps that the Supreme Court has now uh, ruled unconstitutional. Um, but there is another case pending on the legislative maps um, making sort of a very similar case about uh, racial gerrymandering of the legislative districts. Um, and that we could get a decision on fairly soon. Uh, the lower court had ruled that um, they needed to redraw the maps and they needed to actually do it this year and hold a special election this year. Uh, the Supreme Court has put that on hold for now, uh, pending their decision in that. So uh, people are sort of eagerly waiting to hear you know, A, does the Supreme Court uh, make a decision that upholds the lower court's ruling uh, that the legislature needs to redraw legislative maps? Um, and if so, do they have to do that this year or next year? Uh, the conventional wisdom seems to be the later they wait, uh, the less likely we might have a, a election by, you know, September or October. But with the courts, anything is possible. So I think it's probably premature to say we definitely won't have an election this year. It's still on some level a possibility and certainly would be a, a big boon to the Democrats um, if they had redrawn districts. The Republicans may still be able to draw them in a way that keeps their majority, but uh, it, it might make it more difficult for them to keep a supermajority. Uh, the Democrats are already, I should note, 
trying to recruit candidates uh, to run whatever the districts may look like, including a, a guy I wrote about this week, an uh, attorney from Kerry named Wiley Nickel, who is uh, actually a former Obama administration staffer. Uh, he plans to run for state senate, but uh, he doesn't know what district. So he's already set up the campaign finance organization to take donations and start fundraising. Uh, I looked up his uh, home address, and he actually lives in uh, the district of uh, Democrat Jay Choudhury, who he assured me he's not going to run against Choudhury, who's uh, fairly well-liked in the Democratic Party. Uh, he's really there to try to get um, Roy Cooper to uh, have a, a majority that, uh, or a Republican majority that's less than the supermajority so he can veto stuff in the uh, last couple years of his term. Um, so we'll, that'll be something to watch, and certainly there may be some more candidates uh, throwing their hat in the ring either for current districts or hypothetical future districts. Okay, so the court basically could either take that case, uh, and then we would have oral arguments, and we definitely yeah, and that would probably take then, uh, far too long for an election yeah. this year. We'd really be looking at twenty eighteen yeah. at that point. Or they could just say, well, we've already. Uh, I guess they could just say, well, we've we we basically feel along the similar lines as the congressional case. We'll just let that. Yeah, stand. let the ruling stand, and then. Um, presumably, the elections would be back on. I think the the deadline for the legislature to hold uh, to draw the new maps was supposed to be in March under that ruling that was put on hold. Um, so I think the lower court would have to go sort of redo the deadlines and whether they would uh, keep the 2017 elections or say now nah, we'll just wait till 2018. I guess we'll, we'd have to see. Okay. Well, in the state house, you had what. 20 or 30 districts that had been called into question by that ruling? I mean, Yeah, it's a lot harder to redraw, I would think, because with just 13 congressional districts, you move some stuff around. There was only two where um, you had the issues with racial gerrymandering, um, and then out in the western part of the state, the, the districts were not subject to the racial challenge. Um, with the state legislature, that could be a little bit different because um, you could avoid election, I think, in most of these rulings in any district that doesn't get changed. But in order to keep a partisan advantage, the way they redraw the maps tends to be fairly sweeping. Um, and then everything changes and everything is subject to a, a new election. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how much the numbers change and what the demographics look like of districts um, if they have to redraw them. It'd be interesting. I, I looked into it about six months ago for PolitiFact, found that basically half the districts in the state were uncontested in the 2016 elections. You know, people just didn't really even have a choice when they went to vote. It was just, you know, whoever was, you know, there's only one name on the ballot. And um, what I looked into is, you know, people were saying that it was due to gerrymandering. And it was pretty much true. Uh, you know, so, some of these uh, districts are drawn so... Uh, so one-sided for, for both parties that, you know, the other side says, well, basically, why even bother? Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the challenges for the Democrats, I think, is trying to recruit candidates, and that's something that I think has been a priority for uh, the state party chairman, Wayne Goodwin, since he took over, is trying to at least get somebody on the ballot so that you, you at least can show you were trying, even if it's a heavily gerrymandered district. Well, it's kind of looking like we're going to be talking about redistricting uh, probably almost until or maybe until uh, we start the new round in 2021 after the next census. So uh, we'll be uh, talking about that again. Uh, meanwhile, at the federal level, we had uh, the big news out of Congress was the uh, uh, what they call the CBO score, the uh, uh, Congressional Budget Office analysis of how much the uh, new health care bill will uh, cost and spend and what it will do to people's uh, health care and their premiums. Um, Will, you uh, have looked at that a little bit on the old versions, and then this week 
uh, you looked at it again. Uh, what uh, what was it that came up that uh, that made you look into this? Yeah, well, uh, you know, version? you know that it's a weird time in politics when a uh, financial analysis of a healthcare bill, you know goes viral and makes the news and that's what everybody's talking about. Get someone body slammed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so the uh, th- there was a bunch of uh, rumors swirling around on uh, essentially the, uh, the liberal blogosphere uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning that after this new report had come out um, that North Carolina Representative Mark Meadows, who is obviously a huge figure in the healthcare debate this year, uh, cried over the new report that, uh, the, you know, the way all of these uh, kind of left-leaning blogs and websites were putting it, you know, he was just so overcome by, you know, the effects of the bill that he just broke down in tears. Um, so, you know. Which the, would be a little strange because there was no real surprise in right, the exactly. score. Right, uh, exactly. It, it was pretty much the same as the last one, and obviously Meadows helped negotiate a lot of the more controversial aspects of this bill. He knew exactly you know, what it would do, for better or for worse. And Meadows doesn't really have a John Boehner reputation for getting a little teary-eyed on a regular basis, right? <laughs> exactly. So, And real quick, what just... Top line, what did, the, what did the CBO score say about this? Right. Um, CBO said that basically by 2020, um, I, th- I think, or 2026, I forget which, uh, but 23 million Americans uh, would lose health care compared to if Obamacare stays the law, and um, which is a pretty striking number, pretty similar to the, uh, to the version that we saw in March. I think the March version said... Uh, 24 million, so it, it was virtually the same. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think this is the first time I've ever che- fact-checked uh, rumors of uh, people crying <laughs> over over things. But uh, it turns out that uh, Meadows did tear up in an interview when he was talking about the bill, but he wasn't uh, crying about the bill itself. He actually uh, tragically lost both his dad and his sister to cancer and was relating their stories, and that uh, got him a little emotional and uh, really, the newsy part in there was he was saying that he knows because of, uh, you know, his own family struggles with, uh, you know, obviously cancer is a huge pre-existing condition, uh, which has been one of the more controversial parts of this uh, bill, that he'd be willing to put in a little bit more money um, to help uh, take care of people with pre-existing conditions who would still be taken care of under Obamacare, uh, but if the Republican plan passes, would lose most, if not most of the protections uh, that they they currently have. So, um, yeah, so that that was interesting. Uh, you know, might might see a little bit of uh, a softening of uh, Meadows' case, which is uh, pretty notable since he was the one who really killed the first version of uh, the AHCA because, you know, he thought it was too moderate. Um, so... So yeah, had that. Um, and also, then you, you you rated Tom Tillis this week. Yeah, too, I'm, I'm on looking a, at all uh, of our check, so. all of our members of Congress. Uh, Tom Tillis came out uh, uh, late last week and sponsored a bill called the Back the Blue Act, which would make um, assaulting a police officer a federal crime, which would make it subject to mandatory minimums. And also in a, you know in federal prison, you don't get released for you know good behavior like you do in state prisons. You know. Just, in general, federal prisons worse, um, and then it would also give uh, more money for police grants, and it would make it much much harder to sue police officers for abuse. Um, and he said that this law was needed because 2016 was one of the deadliest years ever in American history for police officers. Um, and 
So I pulled up some FBI stats. Uh, they've been keeping this kind of data for decades, and it, that's just simply not true. Um, 2016, uh, around 66 police officers were killed by criminals on the job, which is, of course, awful. You know, no one wants even one cop to be killed. But that's not even half of what some of the worst years were in the 70s and the 80s. And, uh, and then even when you consider that we have about twice as many police officers now, it's a significantly safer time to be an officer than it was even just three, four, five decades ago. Uh, so he got a false for that claim. All right. Well, unless there's something else, we'll uh, take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. Welcome back to Domecast. It's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide on the most important person in this week's news. Uh, Colin, who's your Headliner of the Week? I am going with uh, someone who made a little bit of news this week uh, for challenging uh, Congressman George Holding. Wendy Ella May is a military veteran and transgender woman from Johnston County. As best we can tell, uh, she would be the first uh, transgender candidate in North Carolina to run for Congress uh, once she formally files uh, later in the year. Um, she was previously run for office for Johnston County Commission um, as a Democrat, um, did not win there. Obviously, Johnston County is not favorable territory for, for Democrats in many ways. And of course, the uh, congressional district is uh, heavily tilted towards uh, Republicans as well. Uh, she was also a uh, delegate for uh, Bernie Sanders at the Democratic National Committee. So we've written a little bit about her before. Um, so for uh, breaking a, a bit of a, a new boundary for uh, the transgender community, Wendy LMA, uh, candidate for Congress. Okay, and we may see she may be the first of, of others to uh, to run in that district since that's now supposedly at least a, a target of, of Democrats. Uh, at least they put it on a, a list that uh, uh, they say is their their list of targets. Uh, so Wendy LMA in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go for the entire legislature for uh, convi- convincing us all that their. Um, milk sipping contest is actually a milk chugging contest. Now, they have this contest every year, every periodically, this milk chugging contest. It's the House versus the Senate. And you'd expect to see, you know, people with uh, gallon jugs hoisted over their heads. But no, if you look at our video, you'll see a bunch of people sipping through straws like obedient school children. So what I'm going to say is uh, congratulations, legislature, for redefining the word chugging. Um, and officially, down is up, up is down, and sipping is chugging. <laughs> oh I can't Nothing. stop that one. <laughs> Nothing matters. We're sipping milk through straws. Well, it's really the, it must be the dairy industry that decides uh, how this milk is to be. Uh, That'll be my be next chugging. fact check. Are, are they actually chugging? <laughs> and based on and clearly from the video, 
there's no chugging involved. <laughs> is it is it possible that they the 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 big milk, <laughs> if we could call it that, does not really relish the idea of having politicians throwing up after drinking their product? I think that might be the reason or they don't maybe, want any or chugging. Maybe it's mini milk who's really behind the whole thing. It's so dainty. <laughs> it would be it would be really kind of bad advertising. So. All right. Well, the legislature is in the hat for headliner of the week for their um, milk scam. Uh, <laughs> according to Lynn Bonner, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> Will, top that. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can. Um, but I am going to nominate uh, former U.S. Representative Renee Elmers, uh, who earlier this week uh, was named to a job in the Trump administration. She is now the new uh, regional director for the Department of Health and Human Services, overseeing various health care issues out of an office in Atlanta, um, Elmer's kind of uh, made a name for herself when she was in Congress out of opposition to Obamacare, and she was the first and one of few women in Congress to endorse Trump during the primaries. Um, uh, it was a little while until she got this job, but uh, from you know what we've heard on the national level, you know Trump is leaving quite a, quite a few jobs uh, unfilled in his administration. So. Uh, she got one of the ones that has been filled and uh, will now be uh, making various health care policy bureaucratic decisions for people in the southeast uh, for the foreseeable future. All right. Renee Elmer is the new regional administrator. I think she started this week, uh, a former nurse, uh, taking that job in the Trump administration. Uh, so Renee Elmer is in the hat for a headliner of the week. And finally, Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Well, uh, during this week of budgeting in the House, the man behind the curtain was uh, Representative Nelson Dollar of Cary, who was really the chief budget writer. And uh, he uh, that was underlined at, at the very end of the meeting I was at, the Justice Public Safety Appropriations Committee, when uh, Nelson Dollar walked in, kind of tried to slide to the side, when one of the committee co-chairmen, Jamie Bowles, said, oh, Santa's here. You got a bag of uh, money in there for us? Of course, to which Nelson replied, what, you're, what, what are you, the, old, the kid who was never satisfied with his gifts? Uh, so they, uh, it just kind of uh, shows the, uh, the tension there of trying to make, uh, make the budget work the way they want to. But Nelson Dollar is certainly a key player. Hopefully Moore County doesn't get coal in their stockings now for uh, yeah. Representative Bull's comment. You could see <laughs> that uh, he kind of frosted over, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that could be trouble. All right. Uh, the jolly legislator who comes once a year to uh, bring budget gifts. Uh, in this case, uh, it's Nelson Dollar, uh, the uh, budget chairman in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, so we have Wendy LMA, the legislature, Renee Elmers, and Representative Nelson Dollar, uh, all uh, all good candidates, uh, but I think Lynn sold it. I think we have to go with the legislature for its uh, for its milk scam, uh, and uh, we'll we'll look to see if future uh, incarnations of this this milk contest is a little more uh, uh, exciting than uh, sipping through a straw. We should ask someone to come on to uh, defend. Yes, the, we, uh... we are fair and balanced here. Don't cast. We should really get a. Uh, Next week's guest, the milk lobby. But keep in mind, we're not anti-milk here. We're just we're just anti-milk sipping. Uh, so uh, this week's headliner of the week is the legislature, uh, all of them, or at least all the ones who participated. And I noticed they even had a ringer from the staff come and, 
Yeah, so I, I was there covering it, and the um, Senate was supposed to have, they actually had four members were listed on their team on the uh, sign-up form, but Andrew Brock and Mike Woodard did not show, so it was limited to uh, Rick Gunn and uh, the freshman legislator from Lumberton, Danny Britt. Uh, so they had to get a, a guy who I think was an intern from Ralph Heiss's office as one of the uh, folks. That's a bone of contention between the House and the Senate for this competition every year is that the Senate often has a hard time getting three actual senators who want to drink milk. Uh, and so they usually get somebody much younger who's an intern or a, a staff member, um, and, and then they end up winning. The Senate actually wins more times than not, I think, in this competition. Protest, non-Senate member. <laughs> Future. All right. Future senators Time for the Senate. 50 seconds. Time for the House. A minute and five seconds. All right. A, uh, a wholesome competition uh, uh, that's uh, got another year. I do think books. it was whole milk. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, catch us next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.